Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Second guest today is Stephanie Froge. Stephanie Froge is a professional crime victim service consultant working with programs that assist victims of crime, the bereaved, and address issues of social justice. She provides customized training and program development in all facets of reaction to trauma. Welcome to the show, Stephanie, and welcome back, Gloria. Thanks, Heidi. Welcome, Thanks. Glad to be here. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show. Well, and I wanted to talk about grief and trauma. Now, mm-hmm. you know, you're an expert in the in this field, and and you you uh, what are you doing right now exactly in it? Well, are you doing private practice or? I'm I'm not a therapist, but I am doing consulting work in the areas uh, that Heidi just described of of grief and loss and trauma. Um, particularly focused toward agencies and programs that work with uh, victims of crime and, and survivors of trauma. And I also teach part-time at the local university. Oh, great. That's a, and what university is it? That's Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. Wow. Well, talk to us a little bit about the difference between grief and trauma. You know, that's a good question because I think often we, we kind of use those words interchangeably, but really when you look at them more closely, they're quite different phenomena. And grief, of course, is the experience of loss, of of something or someone loved. And people's responses to that loss are sorrow and yearning and so forth. Um, But trauma is an experience that outstrips our coping, coping mechanisms. It's something that happens to us that we really are not prepared to respond to. And obviously a loss may also be a trauma or a trauma may have loss as part of it. Mm-hmm. But the experiences are largely different and the healing is quite different. Hmm. That's, that's an interesting point. Now would you say that um, with our audience out there where they've had a terminal illness uh, opposed to somebody who had an immediate a murder or uh, uh, would you say there's a, would that be any difference as far as grief and trauma go? There probably are some different elements in those two that you've described, and, and I want to emphasize that that doesn't mean in any way that one is worse or one's you know suffering might be greater or lesser you know depending on the circumstances of the death. There just are depending on the circumstances probably unique elements that mm-hmm. become then a part of that survivor's, you know, own personal healing journey. And certainly um, when the death is sudden and unanticipated, that not being prepared, that level of unexpectedness, um, the, the lack of opportunity to say goodbye and I love you and I'm sorry, um, those are pieces that are going to be present for the bereaved whose loved one has died suddenly versus someone whose loved one's death might have been somewhat expected. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and I'm glad you're talking about the fact that if, if a child or a sibling dies of a terminal illness, it can still be a trauma. I have spoken with many, many people who talked about watching their children or their siblings deteriorate 
and watching them in great, great pain. And the more they talked about it, and they were very, very traumatized by watching them, the decline of these children. Absolutely. That's an excellent point. And certainly, um, you know, the death of a child is, regardless of circumstances, is going to be perceived as premature. I mean, a child should never die. Um, a child should never predecease their parents. And you know and, what? It's interesting because it's not even. Somebody said to me the other day, "Well, you know, our child was 40," and I looked at him and said, "You know, that doesn't make any. I mean, like, like, uh, <laughs> like they wanted to have permission to, like they felt felt they weren't entitled, right? Because they had an adult child." I said, "I don't care if you're 90 and your child's 65. Exactly, you're, you're supposed to die before them because you're exactly. the parent. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. you know, people need permission." Uh, you know, to do that. Mm-hmm. So what, is there a difference between the way you treat uh, grief and trauma? Well, you know, mental health experts, I think, are coming to understand that there are differences a little bit more clearly, and um, the sense of the field is that you really need to deal with the trauma piece before you deal with the grief piece. And I really love, Therese Rando has a little... Um, uh, kind of a scenario that I think illustrates this really well. She says, you know, if you're if you're standing somewhere and you see somebody running up to you and they, you know, run up to you and bop you on the head and you fall to the ground, you know, your first thought's going to be when you, you know, sort of get your wits about you again, is going to be, you know, why did that happen? Why did that clown do that to me? You know, where are the police? But if somebody came up from behind, you never saw them coming and bopped you on the head, you fell to the ground, and when you kind of got your wits about you, your first question would be, what happened? Mm-hmm. And we can't, I mean, it's much more challenging to sort of answer the why questions until we even have a sense of what it is that happened to us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um what type of assistant do you see that victims of crime need? I mean, you know, when somebody comes up and bops them on the head or, you know, where there's a crime where right. uh, a family member is murdered or whatever. Or, I, you know, one of the things, even if you don't have a death, uh, I think that there is such an invasion if you've had, if you've been robbed or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, had that kind well, of and I'm And I'm thinking thing. of where I live, Manhattan, and I live in Midtown, and just... On 9-11, the fact that the entire city was now feeling very vulnerable and very much victimized sure. by what had happened, even if they didn't know someone that died in the World Trade Center. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. what kind of things, what do you think people need when they've, when they've had this victim, been victimized? What, what do you see when you work with people or see them? Well, one important note, I think, is that trauma impacts us chemically, I mean, Physiologically, it changes our chemistry, it changes us neurologically, and, um, and that's one of the reasons we're starting to understand more and more why, you know, traumatic memories are so powerful. I heard um, a few minutes ago, you know, the message from the woman who escaped from the house fire in which her brother had been killed, and that intrusive recollections of, of that fire are replaying in her head. Right. And we, we have a better understanding of, you know, why that's happening to us sort of neurologically. And so part of, of trauma recovery, as Richard was talking about, is kind of interrupting those um, those patterns, those triggers, those memories. And, and by uh, the way, those memories for those folks out there are chemical. 
Exactly. That's how they are united is through chemistry. And, uh, yeah, you, there are pathways that, that mm-hmm. have to be changed. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and there are various, and, you know, I'm not sure it's a topic for today's conversation, but you there can are some of the treatments. You know, yeah. there are various treatment methods like um, EMDR mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, thought field therapy. Yeah, and, can, you, and can you say what EMDR stands for? It's eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. It's kind of a, a long term, um, and and thought field therapy and and some other things. That you know, EMDR uh, was pioneered by what or started by Shapiro out here in yeah, in, in, uh, at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And you know, the idea is it's so simple. They almost you follow their finger and tell your story, and but it's an eye movement. Right. That, that changes some brain chemistry, and I have heard very. I have. I don't do it myself, but if you have a hideous memory that keeps coming up mm-hmm. over and over, and it's been, you know, a year or two or whatever, and and it's really invasive in your life, it might be something to look at because uh, apparently they are able to change some of these brain patterns. Yeah, exactly. I've heard amazing stories from people that have gone to counseling and told their story over and over and they couldn't get these these memories out of their heads and they did EMDR and like you said there was a complete cognitive shift and they were able to get the memories finally out of their head mm-hmm. right and and I want to I'm like you I'm I'm not trained to do EMDR mm-hmm. but in in talking with those who are as well as talking with survivors who have have undergone it um, it does sound kind of bizarre when people describe mm-hmm. it, but but the research is pretty hopeful. It does seem to work for a fair number of people, but I want to be really clear that it's not that the memory itself diminishes. It's not mm-hmm. hypnotism. It's not, you know, forgetfulness or anything like right. that. It just somehow seems to disconnect the memory from the, the feelings. Right, so, but however, that's, that's what I want... Dis- yeah. That's a good distinction. When I think it's most successful is when people have really gelled the memories. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's important, as Richard said, to talk about it, to go to groups or whatever. Absolutely. So that you can get your story in line, so you mm-hmm. can figure out what it is that's troubling you. Right. And, you know, I mean, some of the things we naturally have to have... I mean, some people talk about seeing their child um, in the coffin or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And and I always say to them, you know, grief is like a giant tantrum. We've always been told that we can get it if we want it. And so we keep going for it. If you want something badly enough, you can have it. Our mothers all told us that. Mm-hmm. So we keep going for the event. And seeing the child or the, or the parent or whatever in the coffin mm-hmm. may be a way that our mind is helping us to realize that we are not going to get it back. Right. And it goes back to that issue of having to answer the question, what happened? Right. And we will have to review this over and over and and over. And so we're getting our mind around it. But eventually, Mm -hmm. you know, as time goes on, if it disrupts your activities of daily living, then this might be, uh, you might try some other other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't consider it abnormal to begin with. Oh, absolutely not. No. No. So, uh, Heidi, uh, I've got a couple of emails here. I think I, I know Stephanie um, had worked with TAPS uh, at one time, and can you tell us a little bit about TAPS? I'd be glad to. TAPS is actually an acronym for Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors, and it is an organization that provides peer-based support for people whose loved ones have died while serving in the military. And um, the organization is about 15 years old, but as you can kind of imagine, with the um, events of the last uh, five or six years, uh, certainly 
for more and more Americans, the loss of a military loved one is, is, has become a reality. Right. And um, TAPS is a great organization for families, and, and they have a newsletter and all kinds of things. You can go online and look at that. But uh, I wanted to, uh, just what brought it up for me is uh, we had an email from June, and she said, uh, our son died in Iraq. He was separated from his wife, however, and she was able to decide what to do with his body. She chose to cremate him, and I am feeling very angry as a parent at her, and I'm also very angry with the military. You know, that is that is not an uncommon scenario, and, you know, rightly or wrongly, the the military does allow um, the service person to, you know, designate one person to make those kinds of decisions and um, um, until that, you know, until somebody else is designated, the fact in this case that they were separated, you know, from the military's perspective doesn't matter. And, and yes, that is a source of tension in many families. One person got to make the decisions. They may have been decisions that other family members wouldn't have made. And it becomes another, another source of tension at an already difficult time. But it is the reality, June. Yeah, and I'm wondering if she was able to see the body or whatever. Maybe that's an issue for her. And right. I would suggest, uh, I don't know what you're thinking, Stephanie, but I always think that maybe if June can create another ritual for herself or maybe a little shrine or plant a tree or do some kind of a ceremony uh, that would connect him with that, it might be a good thing. But I think she, you know, she's very angry with, with as a parent and at the military. I think she's got a right to be angry. Well, sure. and, and this issue played itself out. I mean, I've, I've been working with the FDNY as a consultant for seven years with 9-11. This issue was a co- is a common thread. Oftentimes, if someone that's died was married, the widow or widower has all the power to make the decisions. Right. And oftentimes, the parents feel like they're very much cut out, and it's a very helpless feeling to be right. a parent and feel like, I, I don't have any decisions to make here. I'm not allowed to make any decisions. Yeah. Just frustrating. So, I think very it is. normal thing, June, and thank, thank you for your email. Are you writing for us? Heidi was asking you, and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Yes, I am, as a matter of fact. I oh, good. Just, uh, I have not rem- remember. Very mm-hmm. good. We've got it. I thought you were. So people can go to uh, our site, uh, the uh, Open to Hope Foundation, and hit on your name, and they should be able to get your email from that. I think so, yes. Yeah, so uh, you'll be able to find Stephanie if you want to email her after the show. Well, I want to talk a little bit about um, someone who has somebody die as a result of homicide because I know you're you're an expert and assist in victims of crime. And I just got an email today about uh, that one of the people in my Compassionate Friends groups, um, the murder of her son, uh, is going to be sentenced tomorrow. And I and I just wondered what can I do for her and and what does she need to do for herself? I know she's been very worried about her victim impact statement and uh, whether she can stand to read it with the family there. And I I don't know if you have any thoughts around that. Well, what a what a wonderful friend to be to be concerned for her and and to want to help her. I think that there's um, a couple of different things. A victim impact statement, of course, is something that the courts do allow in all states either um, on paper or being read aloud, and it sounds like she is, in fact, going to read aloud, um, just some of her thoughts about how her son's murder has impacted her and her family. Um, It may be that she'll want to line up um, a friend or relative or victim advocate if she finds that she herself cannot make that statement. Oh, someone else can make it for you. Absolutely, they can. I didn't think about that. I, I didn't realize that. 
Yeah, so she might, you know, just want to identify a, a couple of backups so that the statement is still made um, in the event that she personally doesn't want to make it. But just some, you know, kind of words to the friend. There is a, um, I call it kind of the C word, and, and I know some of your listeners will, will resonate to this. We, we have in our culture kind of a sense that when certain things happen, that survivors will get closure, you know, closure, whatever the heck closure is. And um, um, that's true. Uh, people get those messages, I think, in the criminal justice system. Well, once an arrest has been made or, or once somebody has been sentenced, that the family will somehow have closure. And they don't. I mean, that is a piece that will be over for them, but it will not give them any sense of, you know, real sense of closure. And so that friend can help by continuing to be an ongoing support and presence in that woman's life and the life of her family and, and to not make the mistake of assuming that just because the criminal justice piece may have reached some level of resolution that that is going to make things much better right. for the family in fact, it's not. In fact uh, for most of the families that I've worked with who've, who've had murder or had to go through court cases, it's mm-hmm. so disappointing. When it's all over, the, you know, they really wanted the person to feel sorry, the family to feel sorry. You don't get it. It, it You just don't get it. Very, very simple. Uh, that's what, you know, people that we've mm-hmm. been involved with have told us. It just doesn't come. So realize that you're going to do it. But Well, and, you know. and not only does it often not come, you don't see the remorse you wish to see, but when you go home and leave the courtroom and you walk into your house, your brother or sister or child is still not there. That's right. That's and all that activity you've been doing for the last three years is over, and now what? Exactly. You know. Well, I, I also wanted to talk to you. I, I uh, saw somebody the other day, and I promised her that I would bring this up on the show because I told her the show was about trauma. It's uh, from my friend Pam, and Pam's son was killed in a motorcycle accident mm-hmm. in a foreign country, and she just can't it's having trouble wondering if he suffered if he knew if he was in pain you know um he he was taken to the hospital you know he didn't die immediately and she just she's really suffering around that uh, have you got any thoughts about that that's a pretty common concern as you well know um among survivors and we we do have a, a keen need to know what were our loved ones last moments and did they know they were going to die and who was there to care for them and so forth? You know, it's going to be much more difficult since her, since her son died in another country, but, you know, those answers are still out there for her. She may have to work a little bit harder depending on what country it was. I mean, she may have to find someone who speaks the language. Um, but with, with a little bit of legwork, I would expect that she can track down. You know, her husband's doing that, but she hasn't wanted to do it herself. And, you know, she didn't get to see the body. He Mm -hmm. saw the body because he went over there. But it's so interesting the way people grieve. Uh, She is one who's kind of pulled back and gotten quiet and Mm -hmm. is asking those questions. But I'll have to tell you one thing that really helped her, Heidi, yesterday Mm -hmm. when I talked to her, and that is I told her about your head-on collision. Mm -hmm. I was just thinking of that. Could you mention that? Well, the reason I was thinking of that is because even when we have the facts about the way somebody died, um, we really don't know what they were going through in those seconds that they left their, the, the earth, that they actually died. We don't know because we can't be in their bodies. And um, I'm just thinking about my own brother's death, which was when he you know, got in a car accident and the car blew up. I know what physically happened, but I don't know what he was going through. And I had my own experience where I, was, I had a head-on collision. And that was, was just very, three years ago, right? Right, in 2004. It was very traumatic. The, the accident was actually, on some levels, worse than the one that killed my brother. 
Um, there wasn't a fire, but the car was totaled, and I did think I was going to die, and I very much resisted it. And once once I realized that it was going to happen, I allowed myself to kind of go into the headlights of the other car, and I gave in, and I was very much at peace. Wow. And uh, when I came to, and the, the paramedics and fire department was there, and I was trapped in the car, that's when I was woke up and realized, oh, no, I'm in trauma. I'm not in a peaceful place, which I thought I was going to be in. Wow. So my last seconds of my life would have been very peaceful, um, okay. even though to an outsider it may have looked very traumatic. And I think, too, a, a piece I would add to that, Heidi, is that I, you know, we, that is something that survivors obviously dwell on and, and mm-hmm. you know, will, can really we obsess about it. And I don't mean that in a pejorative Absolutely. way. Those are questions that until we have answers, we're going to grapple with forever. But one thing I like to point out is whatever our loved ones suffered or whatever the experience was, they went through it one time. That's and then it was over. And for us as survivors, we go through it a hundred times a day, mm-hmm. and we keep re- re- replaying it until we don't, until we finally exactly. do what Heidi did, which, which is yeah. kind of surrender to the light. Yeah, and say, you know, it is what it is. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, Stephanie, we want to thank you so much for being on the show. Do you have any uh, closing thoughts for our audience? Well, I appreciated something that uh, that I heard Richard say in his closing, and that is. Um, you know, as, as hor- truly horrific as these experiences um, are for many of us, um, they do eventually become more a part of our history than our sort of daily moment-by-moment identity. And if I, can, if I can give anybody a bit of hope for that, you know, I would just do that, that with some time and with some care, um, the agony will soften and it will become more of a part of our history. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for being on the show today. You're Stephanie welcome. Broke. And also Thanks, we Stephanie. Wa- you have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.